Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, small business owner and guy who knows exactly how much it sucks to think 2020 is going to be the best business year yet, only to have those dreams violently ripped away and thrown straight in the garbage. Anyway, rather than going through this alone, I created this show as a shoulder for my fellow small business owners out there to cry on and know you're not alone, so let's get through this together. Fun fact, today's guest, Cynthia Samania, set the new show record for highest percentage of business lost due to COVID. A hundred. A hundred percent. A record that can be tied, but never broken. I guess it's not really that fun of a fact now that I think about it. Anyway, she will tell us about how she's worked to adapt, pivot, and overcome in an industry that is inherently reliant on in-person meetings. First, though, facts and figures. Besides being an audio shoulder to cry on, this show is always a time capsule intended to capture the moment. And what better way to do that than with numbers? So let's talk facts and figures for June 30th, 2020. Today, like in every episode, we start with the COVID stats. Although it's only been four months, it seems like four decades, so let's do a quick synopsis. Worldwide daily new cases in March went from a couple thousand up to 75,000. April saw daily new cases hover in the 80,000s, rising only 10%. May saw numbers jump up about 25%, breaking the 100,000 mark at the end of the month. June, not so good. There was a 75% increase this month, as the number of daily new cases continued to escalate rapidly, surpassing 175,000 per day. That being said, the daily death rate is relatively consistent. Both the increased daily new cases and stable death rates have been attributed partially, at least, to the fact that more young people are being diagnosed. A working theory is young people are less cautious after hearing for months they have a low mortality rate. Of course, that kind of thinking prolongs and magnifies the reach of the pandemic, which puts others in danger. So, that's neat. In the US, things are worse. Remember, daily new cases worldwide are up 75% month over month. In the US, daily new cases up 100%, doubling since the end of last month. On to economic stats. Job numbers are good. Really good. 4.8 million jobs were created this month, smashing estimates. This good news, though, is only good relative to last month as it brings the national unemployment rate down to just over 11%, still higher than at any point in the Great Recession, though. While down from a high of 14.7%, remember that when all this started back in March, unemployment was hovering around 4%. Even more context for you. There were still 1.4 million new unemployment filings, which is a historically high number, just not compared, of course, to the first few months of COVID. I think these numbers should actually be enjoyed while we have them, because there are some big looming cliffs coming up that the economy might just drive right off, including the expiration of expanded unemployment and companies running out of PPP money. The Dow Jones, not much to talk about there, really continuing to hover in the 25,000 range where it seems to be spending sort of a purgatory as it awaits with bated breath those potential cliffs we just mentioned. But enough fear-mongering, let's get to our guest. My guest today is Cynthia Samania, the founder of experiential marketing company Hidden Rhythm. She will share with us what her company started as, the hardcore pivot she made with Zero Runway, aka Zero Revenue, the growth process, and what it was like when she found herself back at Revenue Square One all over again when COVID hit. Hopefully, she will also explain what exactly experiential marketing is, because it sounds like something my company should be doing. Cynthia, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Grant. I'm so excited to be on your show. Yeah, I'm also super excited to have you on the show because I'm pretty sure you're going to teach me all the things I'm doing wrong in marketing my company, or at the very least, what I should be doing. I have a, a, a sneaking suspicion that it's things that I should be doing once we're all allowed to like be in the same room with each other again. But with that in mind, let's start with the easy question. What is experiential marketing? Absolutely. Well, that is a question I get all of the time. I've actually stopped telling most people that I work in experiential marketing because they look at me like a deer in headlights. And after getting that reaction a few times, I realized I had to 
actually explain to people what it is that it means. Um, so it's a fancy term and oftentimes people see dollar signs, but I don't want to scare you and your listeners about what it is. So My really, tens of listeners, right? <laughs> yeah, 11. You have me now. My 11s um, of listeners, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, so really experiential marketing is about offline marketing. It's about engaging your target customer in the offline, in real life space. And you're basically showing them what their lives could be like with your brand. So it's bigger than just having them sample your product. It's showing them what your values are, what your supply chain is like, like what are the things that matter to you? And most brands do that through events. So you can think about influencer dinners, pop-ups, a lot of the things that we've been seeing show up in marketing over the last few years like whether it's at festivals or like I said before, having a gathering of influencers around a dinner table, trying out your products. Those are all examples of experiential marketing. That seems like something that has become more and more relevant over the last, I was going to say decade, but I would say even like, I, I, you know, Instagram is, is, is so pervasive in our everyday life but really it started like less than a decade ago and the the concept of influencers has really only come on the scene in the in its current iteration in the last few years but i think that experiential marketing the way that you just described it seems like it would be uh, a a breath of fresh air because everything is online but b the customer and we've talked about this in in prior episodes Customers care more and more about the humans behind the brand or the humans that, that make up the brand even than I think ever before. Is that something that you have found to be true and like thought about explicitly as you were starting your company? Absolutely. So our most successful events are those where the founders are present. So I work with a range of brands, primarily in the natural food and wellness space. And oftentimes I try and get the founder or someone from the you know, C-suite there to actually interact and engage with attendees, whether they are influencers or just the general public. And it's awesome to see that because you really, as an executive at a company, get to understand what resonates with your target consumer. But then from the consumer's perspective, they actually feel like they're getting a behind the scenes, up close and personal look into what the company stands for. And you're right, experiential marketing has been around for a long time. Truly, the one of the first examples is the Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile. If you, if you remember yeah. that, right? Yeah. I mean, and to this day, that is still a highly coveted job in the experiential space. They go through a rigorous interviewing process and you are the face of that brand. And that is a brand that of course has been around for a really long time. So experiential marketing isn't new, but I will say that the rise of social media and the uh, rise of influencers and influencer marketing has made it more important for brands to create events that gather influencers. But what we do is a range. We, we do consumer pop-ups where anyone can come and show up and we've also done influencer events. And the influencer event, that's interesting because you're doing an offline event designed to then essentially be put into a online, like easily digestible tidbit for the back into the, the Instagram, Facebook, whatever platform uh, for the tens of thousands of, of followers of those, of those influencers. Yes. And that is the trickiest part of those events. And that's actually how I got started in the experiential space was through these influencer events. And what set our events apart from a lot of the others that were being hosted is that we just treated the influencers like people. <laughs> in fact, we encouraged them to put their phones away. We had, we would hide little pouches underneath their dinner plates and tell them to lift up their plates. And while you're eating at the table, put your phone away. We don't want you taking photos of your food because the conversation that you have at the table will make you remember that experience and have a positive association with the brand far more than the photo that you take of you know, your food in front of you under dark lighting. So we would build in moments before and after where we would encourage influencers to capture content. And we would think about that because of course that matters to the brand. 
But I like to bring back the human element of these events and treat everyone like people gathering around a table. And food is so important to me that I hated seeing at other events people looking at food through their phones and not actually engaging with one another. Right. Well, that that, uh, that seems very parallel to the kind of the, the ethos of this podcast, which is to humanize the experience. Um, for us, it's humanizing the, the impacts of COVID, but uh, still humanizing nonetheless. So I, I jumped a little bit ahead of myself by getting so much into your business in its current iteration. Um, can you give us just a, a quick kind of background of how you got to where you are now, both personally and then also professionally? Sure, absolutely. So today I run Hidden Rhythm. We're an experiential marketing agency, as you had already shared. We're based in Oakland, California, but really kind of my path to where I am now was a bit windy and definitely atypical. I studied finance, worked in finance, eventually went to business school, was a product manager in tech, but always had a passion for food. Where and where and where and where? Give us give us some names <laughs> where and, and details. Where and where. Yeah, where yeah, where did you go? Yeah. What'd you do? Where, who'd sure. you work for? Where did you get your MBA? <laughs> you want all of that. Okay. Uh, just just the, the quick, yeah, the quick soundbite resume. Sure, absolutely. So I grew up in Seattle, went to the University of Washington, studied finance there. A big part of my background, which I didn't realize at the time, is that, you know, I grew up in a Persian family. So my parents immigrated from Iran during the revolution. And so I grew up first generation and food was a huge part of our life at home. We were constantly hosting people. And now I know that that culture of hospitality has completely influenced the way that I approach business. So it's no coincidence that I'm building the company that I am now. But if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have had no idea. Um, so graduated from the University of Washington with a degree in finance, went to go work at GE. If you remember GE. Uh, that I do. <laughs> Very big company. I was in a finance program there. Thought I wanted to be a CFO because that seemed like a real job. Uh, and then I decided, then 2008 hit and those finance jobs disappeared and I wanted to go to business school because that's what you do when you don't know what else to do. Right, right. <laughs> so I wanted to go get my MBA. I went to Harvard and had an awesome two years of travel and exploration, both personally and professionally. I immediately, once I stepped on campus, knew that I wanted to focus on building a company. I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit in me. And so I didn't go to those fancy investment banking and consulting panels and talks. I didn't apply to a single traditional job during business school, which looking back, I, I can't believe I avoided that herd mentality, but I did. And instead, I went to South by Southwest. I networked with startups, and that landed me in San Francisco to work for a mobile app company that at the time was very cool and very sexy. It was called Path, and it was started by a former Facebook, early Facebook employee, and the whole idea was to create a more personal, smaller social network. I was there for about five years, started in business, ended up as a director of product management, and then I left all that to be in food. <laughs> That is a winding turn, uh, a winding path, and a, a couple of things there. One, uh, I had to ask for the details because the because of the modesty in the original form of your answer there, and that's such like a quintessential thing to do when uh, where, you know where'd you go to school? Oh, outside uh, Harvard, or uh, I went to school in Boston, or I went to school not in, Tufts, yes, yeah, not yes, 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 exactly. Um, but then also that totally resonates with, and I, and I talked with uh, our mutual connection, Allie, uh, who is, I think, episode four, I think, from uh, from Queen Granola Butter, about how, because she went to Cal, about how it is senior year in college when for the first few years you've been taught to kind of explore your passions and 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 do what really genuinely interests you and try to do well by doing good and make the world a better place while, while also, you know, maybe adding a couple of zeros to your bank account. Wouldn't that all be nice? And then of course, like, you know, fall, like uh, career fairs start happening and who's there. It's like your bank of America's and mm -hmm. your Goldman's and like your, your BCG's and just the, the large companies that I'm sure are the exact same thing at HBS. So to go against the grain, to go, you know, against like the, the massive tide 
where it it becomes this like uh, this who's who of of where did you get an interview? Where did you get an offer from? So to to walk away from all of that and go to South by or you know and, and to head into the the unknown of of startup world, I I heavily highly oh so much applaud uh, that decision making. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if your if your wallet uh, applauds that decision making, but uh, I sure do, and I'm sure that the stories that you have from that are a, a lot more exciting. And if nothing else, uh, it's better dinner table conversation than, oh, I I, I work in uh, I work in consulting, right? Anyway, uh, we we're not here to knock other other professions. I'm just saying that I I love I love the the winding road that you took to uh, to be where you are today. So. Um, a few years ago, what, three, four years ago, you walked away from PATH and you decided to venture out on your own and start? Confetti Kitchen. Confetti which, Kitchen. Which is not Hidden Rhythm. It is a much cuter company name. Uh, so yeah, the, the backstory there, Grant, is that our, so our company was acquired, but to be like totally open, it was not a life-changing acquisition. So okay. I had runway for about a year because the company that acquired Path uh, actually kept me on retainer to help consult. So I was able to pay my rent and pay the bills for about a year, which was awesome because it actually gave me the freedom to do what I really wanted to do, which was go into food. Food had always been this through line, at, like I said, starting off with kind of growing up, setting the dinner table uh, through college and business school. I always had food blogs. I would take the weekends and go to Southern California and take food styling and food photography workshops. I didn't really know what my place in food would be, but I knew that I'm the type of person that my passions professionally and personally need to align. I'm not a nine to five person. Like I want to think about my business 24 seven, as crazy as that sounds. Maybe, it does. It does. Right. <laughs> Maybe not 24 seven. I understand. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally you know understand what I mean. that. Yep. Yep. But I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I could go take I could take that a lot of different directions. I understand it like 98% of the time, but there's only 2% of the time where I'm like, this is the last thing in the world that I want. And I just want a nine to five so I can just turn off my phone and be done with the job. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Absolutely. And yeah, just for me, I've never done well in jobs where I had that definitive black and white separation from my personal and professional life. I just, I'm kind of an all in type of person. So I knew that being in food was what I wanted to do and at the time, food media was what was really calling me. So Confetti Kitchen was a culinary media site for millennials. The whole idea was that, you know, it was it launched in summer of 2016. And people were, I think, really looking for ways to eat together more. Um, this was actually right before the election, which was an interesting time. And if you think about kind of where people... Uh, especially millennials were eating. It was usually at their desk at work or they'd come home and just like whip up something on their own. But everyone aspired, not everyone, but a lot of the people that I was targeting, they were aspiring to have their friends over for brunch on the weekends or have that like fun, casual Friday night dinner. And at the time, there weren't really many media sites that were speaking to that uh, aspirational audience that needed something that was tried and tested so the recipes, the tutorials, all that content was content that I had uh, created with uh, a team of culinary experts. And so it was really this like homegrown effort that we pulled together and we launched it, like I said, in 2016. And it was my first foray into content. I had no business creating a content business, but I went for it. So you went for it and then somewhere along the line you made a pivot and was it a was it a pivot in that you took what you had and turned it into something else or or was it a hard let's turn off this faucet and, you know kind of lock things up and then start something completely new Yeah so it was more of the first Okay one of the things that was really interesting about Confetti Kitchen was that community was a huge part of it. And we didn't just say that. We actually created events from the beginning. So the site launched summer of 2016. We had a launch event in August. And every month we had pop-up dinners. And the whole idea was to bring our community into a space and host events that would connect people over food. Like that's what we wanted people to do on their own. So we were 
Like, why not be the ones to showcase kind of the magic that happens at the dinner table? And it was my first time ever planning an event like that. And I remember going and pushing carts and crates of glassware and plates into these venues. And I'm thinking, what the heck am I doing? Like, this is crazy. And I had a friend who was a chef and we just kind of winged it. But I loved the energy that was captured in that space. And I fell in love with that. And I fell out of love with content. I felt like this is what I want to be doing in food. Now, it wasn't until I would say about a year later that I had to make a tough decision about pivoting the business because content is a really, really competitive business to be in. Once again, like I said earlier, I had no business being in that space. I hadn't raised money. I didn't want to raise money. And you can only do so much with sponsored content. And at the time, I wasn't paying employees. It was just myself. But still, I was burning through cash. So what I had done is I kind of had a moment where I, um, I should also say that the consulting work that I had done for the company that had acquired the tech company I was previously at uh, gave me a call and said, we're good. We are like done with you and you have two Mission months. Mission accomplished, right. Exactly. You have two months and they were paying my rent in San Francisco, which says a lot. Like it was, it was meaningful money. Right. So and I, I was gonna say also, yeah, you're in San Francisco. So cost of living is no joke. And so it's one thing to have like, okay, I, I have $6,000 in the bank, but I live in, you know, rural wherever and rent is like $400 a month for, you know, a, a bedroom and a house and versus like, yeah, I live in San Francisco and it's 2700 a month for the walk-in closet in someone else's apartment. Exactly. And I was living alone and I didn't have a partner at the time. So totally supporting myself. I was trying to maintain the same lifestyle I had when I worked in tech, which was very challenging. So yeah, yeah. So I, I learned a lot. I will say though, having that consulting contract come up from under me was perhaps the best worst thing that could have happened because I wasn't building a sustainable business. Um, It would have taken some outside funding to get there. I'm more than certain. And we've seen what's happened to a lot of the food media businesses. It's really tough. And I don't necessarily think my skill set matched that type of work. So I had a, a moment. It was spring of, I believe, 2007 or sorry, 2017, woof, (laughs) spring of 2017. And I had to decide what am I going to do? And I remembered, I called my sister, I was in a panic and I said, I don't know what to do. And I had almost applied to a job at Williams-Sonoma Corporate. I had, you know, the, the recruiter even called me back. They're like, we saw that you kind of applied, but didn't. And I was going through all of these backup scenarios. And my sister, who is a lawyer and very logical, just said, open up a Google Doc and I want you to brainstorm every single way you can make money right now. And Uh, that is great advice. It was. And she's not really an entrepreneurial person, but she's a risk averse person. And she's someone who uh, could give me advice in a moment where I thought like I was a failure. I was like, great. Now I have to just go back and get quote, a traditional normal job. And so I did. Uh, I opened up a Google Doc and I brainstormed everything and anything under the sun. And the main requirement was that it had to be something that I could monetize today. I didn't need a huge audience because I knew that that was going to take a lot of time. And I also wasn't really kind of a content person. I'm a project person. I love creating things, putting it out there and moving on to the next thing. Uh, I, I love it. And also... I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I could spend so much time on this and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I feel like oftentimes there's, or there's this conversation has been had before, but the idea that entrepreneurs are risk seeking, it's always interesting to kind of just explore that thought a little bit because truly when you are on your own and you have no runway, it's almost like you have to find the least risky mm-hmm. thing because you need it to succeed immediately. That's all I want to say about that. I want to leave it right there. But yeah, yeah food, food for thought yeah. and food, food for, uh, or yeah, for, for another day. Right. Um, 
so we we've kind of gotten to the to the point that uh, where hidden rhythms has started to to come into its modern well into its mm-hmm. pre-COVID form. Um, so let's let's do let's let's get to the the full pre-COVID. Let's finish the segment. Um, where was hidden rhythm? January, February of 2020, aka before there were any COVID-related deaths in the U.S. And what were your hopes, dreams, aspirations uh, for 2020? Basically, how, how did you see 2020 going? And uh, you know, feel free to throw in some some quants if you want, mm-hmm. either revenue goals or number of customer goals, you know, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So just to fast forward. The Confetti Kitchen to Hidden Rhythm Pivot was essentially me figuring out really quickly that brands would be willing to pay me to create events for them. Uh, so that that was basically it. I had worked with brand sponsors, and instead of it being a Confetti Kitchen event, it's an event under brand XYZ, and I was able to get influencers to show up and create experiences that were so good that they were sharing them on social. So that was the big aha. That's and, what, yeah. No, oh, I was just going to say, and, and we had you on the show eat. Even though some of those brands, which shall remain nameless, are direct competitors of of, of my little baby Rickaroons. But okay, go on. Back to you. Back to you. I won't mention any of them. <laughs> okay. No shout out. Yeah. yeah. So so that was really, you know, of course it was a windy path and I'm making it very simplified for the purposes of time here. But that was the aha that I had. And that's what led me to rebrand to Hidden Rhythm. And that was in fall of 2018. So From that point on, we were doing experiential marketing for natural food and wellness brands. Uh, The first few years were bumpy, as I'm sure you can imagine and understand as a founder. We started small. We started with events that weren't very profitable, but put us on the map. And I pitched every brand under the sun that I could think of and had to explain to them why they should work with us on events. Well, eventually we started to build up a roster and then we had clients coming to us on a repeat basis, which is a fantastic place to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Have an agency model. So for me going into 2020, it actually wasn't about building a huge agency with hundreds of clients. In fact, our boutique model is what I intend to have because it allows me to work closely with a smaller number of brands and get to know them so well that I know their graphic designer, you know, I can, I can call them up, I can get those assets and I'm not having to relearn a company every single time. So going into 2020, it was going to be our biggest year grant. I'm telling you like Q1, so January and February, we already had a pipeline that uh, for the year that was I want to say triple the year before, if not more. And that that's not including business that we were going to book throughout the year because usually there's about a three-month lead time. That's incredible. I mean, that's so many of those things that you just said, even without any revenue expectations are no small feat. Like getting getting a phone call back from a big company is incredibly difficult. There's no, like you don't just like go to the yellow pages or like, whatever google you don't you don't just google marketing department decision maker at american express or 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 whoever right like that's that is not that 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 is a ton of research in and of itself so for you to be able to be calling you know every company under the sun like that's just a ton of work that deserves to be recognized yeah well and i will say that i got a bit smarter about it so okay what i did learn teach me teach me. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure how it applies to you, but maybe it does. So I would spend a lot of time trying to educate a brand or convince a brand to do an event. And they would come back and say, well, what's the ROI, this whole experiential marketing thing? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, what I did instead and where I actually saw more uh, greater return, because I am a one and a half woman show, is that I started to only work with brands that knew what experiential marketing was and wanted that. So I didn't spend cycles trying to convince potential clients to work with me. I instead tried to put myself in a position where if you're a brand and you know that this matters, but you can't do it in-house, give me a call and we'll get it done. And the conversations, the deals, everything moved much faster that way. Right. 
And first of all, I, I love the the one and a half woman show. Now, is 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 that alluding to being like nine, 8.9 months pregnant? Or is that you have an assistant or a part-time staff? Yeah. So that, that does not include the baby girl in my belly. Okay. Uh, we'll be here in two weeks. I do. I had a part-time employee who uh, is fantastic and she's an experiential producer. And so she has been with me for a few years now. And so I'm referring to her. Okay. Gotcha. Um so I think that brings us up through February. So before we go on to our next segment, the the MC, the mid-COVID, and we talk about just how awesome for business, um, not at all, uh, COVID-19 has been, uh, I want to take a quick moment for you to do the guest's unsponsor of the show. And at basically the first few episodes of this of this podcast, I was doing my own unsponsor, which I still do at the very end of the show, which is an awesome brand uh, that produces it's basically awesome people who produce an awesome product that deserves uh, your support as a listener. They have no idea that we're even talking about them, but I just kind of wish that someone would do this for me. So with that in mind, uh, I think you have one in mind, but tell us about one small business that is amazing and everyone should have in their home? Absolutely. So this is a tough question because I love to support a bunch of small brands, but one that came to mind as you had been asking me about this is Exal Olive Oil. So it's E-X-A-U. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. No, I'm not, which makes it so much better. Yes. So it's a husband and wife team, Skylar and Giuseppe. And as you could probably guess, Giuseppe's Italian. And he grew up in Calabria in Italy. And his family has grown olives and has produced olive oil for many, many years. And Skylar and him lived in the Bay Area for a while. Skylar comes from a design background. And they actually went to Uh, Calabria in 2018 and decided to go all in on harvesting and creating an olive oil brand from uh, Italy and bringing it to the U.S. And it's won awards. It is fantastic. And what I love about them is they just are very real. And on social media, they they just, they're scrappy and they hustle. I know Skylar personally, and she is always out there trying to do partnerships and to get the brand out there, but they also care a lot about the customer experience. So you can buy their oils online on their website and she'll include a handwritten note. She encourages people to cook with it. She features their recipes on her Instagram or on the company's Instagram. And they're just a a duo that you really want to support. You know, their products, high quality. It's fantastic. Love it. Yeah. Cause especially cause the world of olive oil is known to kind of have like some, some knockoffs out there or like all of olive oils that are like cut with, with other oils. So yeah, I lo- love supporting a, a love supporting good people who are producing a quality product. And do you happen to know what the website is off the top of your head? You know, I don't, I think so, if you just Google Exau, E-X-A-U, olive oil, I'm sure it'll come right up. E-X-A-U. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And with that, let's go ahead and move to the mid-COVID segment. So this basically, from a from a calendar standpoint, we'll take this to like March 1st was the first uh, U.S. COVID-related death. March 15th is like sort of plus or minus a couple of days, depending on where you are, the, the start of like the shutdowns. You are in basically are like ground zero of the shutdowns being in the Bay Area, who... I think so. I'm in San Diego. We started to shut down um, relatively early on as well, but we were trailing you by like a, a week ish. So your date, your timeline might be a, a little bit ahead of ours. So obviously, by the nature of your business of being experiential and that experience being in person, when those gatherings literally become illegal or are mandated to be avoided. Uh, like the plague, how I would assume that everything just comes to like an absolute grinding halt. So walk us through as, as you know, as we talked about how the the ethos of of this is, is to humanize things. What was that realization like for you as you went from expecting three to 400% year over year growth to 
zero percent of of anything absolutely it was it was a sobering experience i will say i was gearing up for a, a conference for a client the first week of March. So it was overlapping actually a bit with Expo West, which I'm sure you and many of your listeners are intimately familiar with kind of how that all went down. Well aware, yep. And my plan was I actually had uh, some clients that were demoing booths that I designed at Expo. So that was unfortunate not to see that come through. But long story short, I was basically out and about at an event for a client the first week of March in Palm Springs. And leading up to it, we were working with some suppliers in China for our swag. And I was losing sleep over not getting a vinyl pouch, or I should say 500 vinyl pouches from China. And I'm like talking to my husband, like, oh my gosh, this is so frustrating. Little did I know that we would be having this conversation today and that COVID, of course, would be impacting my business more than just the fact that I couldn't source vinyl pouches. And that you wouldn't have wanted to receive any of those vinyl pouches or paid for anything all of a sudden. Oh, my goodness. It was unbelievable. So that first week in March, like I said, I was in Palm Springs. We started to hear of Expo West getting canceled. And at that point, I had events Uh, that were lined up starting in April and May. And I had food brands that wanted to do multi-city tours. I had brands that wanted to show up at festivals in the summer. I was going to take the summer off anyways because of the baby, but I had a huge Q2 ahead of me to the point where I didn't know how humanly I was going to get it done. But I thought, great problem to have. I'll just hire for it. And for the listeners, for the for the 11s of listeners out there who aren't familiar, Expo West is like the Super Bowl of the natural product. Or, well, it's called the Natural Products Expo. is is like the Super Bowl of of the health food world. Um, although I guess it started. My dad was just telling me because he went. To, I think the first one ever, like you know, back right after the Civil War or whenever it was. <laughs> um, but basically it's just a giant expo. It, it, it adds days every year. It's like, it's used to be a two day expo. Now it's like, I don't know, a six or six day uh, expo. It has like 80 or 90,000 people go to it every year. They, it, it takes up the whole Anaheim convention center and then the adjacent Hilton and, and I don't know, Hyatt or, or multiple yeah. hotels. And it just continues to grow and grow and grow. And it actually is so ridiculous that we had actually very fortuitously decided not to go this year for the first time in like five years. So when it got canceled, we were like, oh, best decision ever. And then things got really serious and we were no longer gloating because our business was also in the toilet, just like yours. You had done a little bit of research and you informed me that the record of this show in terms of lost revenue prior to you was the uh, episode 10, Jared, whose uh, kombu- kegged kombucha delivery distribution company saw business go down, in his estimations, 97%. Mm-hmm. His has also since rebounded. Yours, on the other hand, though, uh, I think you, you one-up him or you, I guess, three-up him? Yeah, no, wiped out, totally wiped out. And we... Really, fortunately for us, any deposits that we had, we hadn't spent, we were able to return, but it was just a complete overnight loss of business. And it's, it makes sense. I mean, frankly, I, if a brand came to me and said, oh, don't worry, we're going to make it happen. Like we'll just do a smaller event in May. I wouldn't want to take on that liability or that risk as a producer. So it was an it was an easy decision for the brands to make. It was an easy decision for me to make. The decision was made for us, frankly. But then the question was, now what? Because at the time, most of the conversations happening in the event world were that, oh, Q4, like everything will be fine in Q4. And no one knew why we were saying this, but Coachella, for example, was pushed to September or October. Other festivals and other large conferences were like, oh, we'll just do this again in October. But no one really knew why. They just said that. So then as an industry, we just thought, yeah, maybe Q4. But the reality is we still don't know. I I think humans in general are just, we are wired to make decisions based off of prior experiences, right? So it's, it's why humans are really bad at 
you know, house hunting for the first time and like shopping for mortgages and buying life insurance and planning for their own retirement. It's because like you've never done any of these things before. So like how, how would you know? Right. Like, how would you know that? Oh, yeah, I should have this life insurance package. You've never died. Right. <laughs> what should my 401k look like? You've, you're 27 and you're making decisions. You don't know what you're going to need in, in 38 years when retirement comes. And so when we have this global pandemic, like, yeah, we've seen, you know, the swine flu or, or like, you know, avian flu. And, and we've seen these we've seen these things or, or Ebola where it's like, oh man, yeah, that's crazy. That thing that's happening in a village in Africa, because right. that's how we view things here in the U S it's like, that, oh, that's an, that's a them problem. That's a, that's a, I read it on, I read it in the news and there's like a, a quick uh, NPR article or, or whatever. It's like, oh man, 17 people. That sounds like a painful way to go. Boom, continue to scroll on my Instagram to the next thing. And it, it almost in kind of like an aloof, it just not my problem. And and obviously I'm this is not like a good thing, but it this this is has is obviously unlike anything we've ever seen. I mean, like duh. I don't know how to say it in any other way other than like it's just it's so readily obvious. It's like it's it's pervaded, pervasive in like and, and just touched every aspect of our day-to-day life, week-to-week life, like all decision-making is, is or basically built around COVID now, right? And although it seems like it's been around forever, it's really only been around for a couple months. So we're all still figuring this thing out. Mm-hmm. So that was a really a long way of saying that like COVID is a big deal. Um, so yeah, of course, like there's no real way to, to plan for what to do. So Q4... I don't know. Yeah, this is a big problem, but surely this big problem can't go on forever. So Q4, it's almost like it's a it's a wishful thinking. So Absolutely. I want to bring this back to you in that you said that you have generally like a, a three month kind of uh, lead time from when someone comes to you before that event actually happens. So we are, let's see, I guess almost exactly three months into this, I guess, you know, today is, is June 16th, 2020. And so if, if our, if our time zero is uh, March 15th, yes, yeah, so we're, we're about three months in. Um, and there's still no real end in sight. We're starting to do this weird thing where we're reopening a lot of things, but a lot of scientists are like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But, you know, governors and people in the elected positions are, are I, I get it. Like, they don't want to be the ones who are in office when there was a giant recession that that hit and you know erased all all economic growth for the from the past you know ten years or whatever. I assume that that makes it really really difficult for you with your pre-COVID business model to plan ahead. Have you had? And I'll, I'll leave this a kind of intentionally open-ended. Um, but have you had any customers who have come back yet and are willing to even talk about planning things in the future yet? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean it's been it's been more of I miss you. I can't wait to do stuff again when we want to and when we're ready. You're who I will call up. But if you think about it, experiential marketing is already a very risky place for marketers to put their money, no matter what size company they have. So it's already an uphill battle to get a lot of brands to invest because we could do a whole episode on ROI and that's, that's more on my podcast, but it it takes a lot. And how, and how really difficult I'm sure it is to measure. Very difficult. So now you're adding another layer of risk, which is okay, we invest all this money and we build out a really cool environment and design and we buy swag and then it doesn't happen because we're still not ready. So it doesn't surprise me that that those conversations haven't happened. I know some brands are toying with the idea of virtual, uh, virtual events and virtual experiences. I'd say that's still really tough with the clients I work with because I specialize in food and wellness. You really need to kind of have some of that physical interaction there uh, but it's it's an, there's potential there's potential right yeah there i guess i have a, a, a couple questions out of that one of them was are you 
are you seeking to find some sort of in-person pivot that can happen through Zoom or through something else? I mean, it's hard if you're doing like high quality prepared foods. Is there a, is there anything that you're, I'm sure you've thought about this. And so I'd love to hear if the answer is even no, kind of what the rationale is about what types of adjustments you can make to to continue to or to, to to find a revenue source in a similar vein to what you were doing with the experiential marketing under the continued constrictions and and guidelines implemented by by local governments um, moving forward, assuming like essentially if COVID continues in the exact same way for another six months, what can you do? Yeah, yeah. So I would say if we go down the line of traditional experiential marketing, what I've done in the past, I think there are opportunities for brands to marry offline and online. So sending product and sending packages to people so they have that unboxing experience. But then, like I said, tying it to some sort of online experience. So whether it's augmented reality, you use your phone, you scan a part of the product and really cool product information pops up and it's a choose your own adventure, highly customizable experience. There are agencies that are ready to do that today. And I think getting the cost down to a place that's manageable will be something that we'll see over time. So I think there are some experiences there around product launches, unboxing, influencer activities that could happen. Um, I would say that that's, I haven't been spending a ton of time on that. Where I've been focusing a lot on currently is actually thinking about uh, creators in the food space and how they can take advantage of online platforms that you know we haven't had to look at in the same way until today, just given the constraints that we have. So whether it's teaching cooking classes on Zoom or being much more disciplined about how you think about marketing online, like those are the things that I think are interesting because you can actually apply a lot of the experiential concepts that we do offline in the online world, but we haven't had to think about that yet. Yeah, I think when when you have something, when you have a big event happen like COVID and you have to make those big adjustments, you have to take a step back and what can be risky or daunting as a small business owner is how to allocate your resources, which is especially uh, uh, just a, a hugely weighted question when you're a solopreneur because your resources are going to be so much more limited than, you know, if, I, I always use Google as an example, but I think um, I just saw some stat that like Apple has enough cash on hand to just buy Tesla outright. Like, you know, so if, so if you're a company like that, you're like, okay, great. Well, let's just go ahead and put a thousand well-educated, hungry, young, you know, people who, who have the, the skill set to, to pivot and go out and find like new sources of revenue and like, no big deal. We'll just continue to pay them their six-figure salaries and we'll make it through it because we're Apple. And then it's a totally different thing when you're like, I'm having a baby in two weeks and I thought my company was going to go really well, but I was planning on taking the summer off. And then now all of a sudden my revenue is down to 0% of where it was with no real end in sight. So now where do you put that time? Because if you, you know, when you brought up augmented reality, that's not your specialty. And there are other agencies who are already doing that. So now the question is, do you go out and acquire that skill set in a way that you think will bring you up to speed in, in a way that will make you competitive with those other agencies based off of the relationships that you currently have. But what if that's the wrong decision, right? What if that doesn't work? And then you're like, oh man, well, I just spent a couple hundred hours doing this new thing. And now I've turned out that like it's it's not the right decision. I am I I'm I feel like I'm able to speak to this because I'm I'm in that same sort of uh same sort of space, obviously different, but just being resource constrained, that is like, the, that is the, 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 the cross that all small business owners really have to carry is where do you put your resources? I don't know. There's no real question out of that. It's just like, I'm almost saying this to it, like to, as a cathartic expression of, of what can sometimes be a, just a hopeless feeling as a small business owner. And as again, we've talked about how this is this podcast is an attempt to humanize the experience and kind of just be a place to vent. 
have you felt uh, feelings of, of hopelessness throughout this? What do you do to cope with those? And, and where have you decided to allocate your resources? And I'm sorry, I have a really bad habit of listing like two or three questions back to back to back that are totally unrelated. <laughs> so take any of those as you want. Perfect. And I trust that you'll ask it again if I fail yeah. to remember. <laughs> oh, I don't remember the questions either, but I know they were really good. Yeah. Well, it, what you described is exactly how I've been thinking about it. So you're absolutely right. I am not by any means an expert in augmented reality, digital experiences. You know, there are agencies that are jumping on this and good for them. Uh, I've had to spend a lot of time, and this is a constant mind exercise that I'm doing where I am thinking about what my positioning is, what's my differentiating factor, uh, because I am not trying to build a massive agency. So what are the what are the benefits that I bring to a company? Why would they work with me versus a larger company? And that's something that I've always had to think about. And if I try and play big, then I'm not going to succeed because I don't have the resources, the team. And what I've decided for myself is I actually don't even want to play that game. I want to build a model that enables me to work really closely with a small number of brands in a non-scalable way, but that's where I get my creative energy. That's where I get to test ideas. And then I have another side of my business, which we'll talk about. And this is more of an online model that is scalable and What's really interesting about this all is that I have been spending the last 18 months working on this idea of creating an online course. And so I have a Facebook group. I have my podcast. I've been building an online community for a while now, but it always took the backseat to my events because at the end of the day, the events paid the bills. And so it was funny that, well, funny, I say funny yeah. now, but the, <laughs> hilarious, hilarious. <laughs> through tears. Yes, totally. Yeah. And, and it was the end of March and I have a mentor who I check in with and I had a wake up call and she was like, why are you going to launch your course in September? Do it now. And I was like, well, how can I ask people to pay money? We're in the midst of COVID. Like I should just be giving things away for free. And I fortunately was part of a community that was like, you know what? Like you can give some things for free. It's called your podcast. And you can also teach a course and there are people who are willing to pay. So I basically accelerated my plan. Originally, I was going to do events up until the summer and launch a course in September. And that has now totally changed. So I, end of March, decided that, okay, I'm going to teach a six-week course about how to take experiential marketing principles that I use offline and how to bring them online. And it'll be for food brands because I know food brands and businesses. And I, by the way, haven't created the course yet, but I'm going to sell it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, so that was my plan. And so I pre-sold the course. I went into a crazy launch period. I put my head down and I spent every day on it and eventually uh, started teaching the course at the end of April. So I went through a whole full month of launching, selling, promoting, and the course just ended, I want to say about two weeks ago. That's amazing. I, I love having people on that. It's just so great. Like, like meeting people who are able to take a negative and like use the opportunity, pivot it into an opportunity, first of all, like to see it as an opportunity. And part of that is like born of necessity, right? You're like, well, I, I need some, I need some revenue and it's not coming back in the in-person event space. Right. right. And so right. It, it, it's like you, you created a podcast, which is called. It's called the experiential table and it launched last fall. And yeah, and we have a Facebook group under the same name as well. Love it. Um, and, and so you, you have the podcast and, and you have the Facebook group. And so you have this following you and you have the ingredients for, uh, for a revenue generating something. And then it kind of just goes back to what we were talking about. We're like, well, where do you put those resources being namely your time, especially as you're preparing, like for a child, uh, 
you know, I, time is obviously like of the essence because you have like a real hard cap before there's going to be a severely diminished amount of time that you have available to put forth, at least in the immediate term, into building something brand new because you're going to be building something else brand new and it's going to have a heartbeat. Exactly. But that, <laughs> I mean, that was the, the cons- I, I say this, constraints drive creativity. Like that is, that has been my motto through COVID. I did not make that up, but I am just using that line because it is true. I, the fact that I couldn't do anything offline forced me to actually create the thing that I've been wanting to build and have been investing a lot of time in learning to build, but finally just had to do it. And the constraint of having a baby due June 28th also made it to the point where I couldn't delay it and say, you know what, I'm not ready. I'll launch it this summer. Like, no, like I had to, I pulled out my calendar and said, oh my gosh, I need to get started tomorrow. And even then that's going to be a stretch. So I think that has been the silver lining at all. The course went great. I'm going to relaunch it again. Like I think it has really solid potential. Even when COVID passes, I don't think we're going to look at the online world the same way we did before. Like we have uncovered really cool opportunities for brands to do more. So to me, it's an investment in another revenue model or revenue stream for the business. Even when events come back, like I don't see this part going away. So who is your target audience for this? Is it, is it small business owners? Is it, is it the like the a, a middle management in marketing at a larger company? You know, who should we be spinning this towards? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because I love this podcast because I can be totally honest. There's who you think buys and who actually buys, right? So yep. So the- <laughs> so true. So, so true. doesn't matter what it is that you're selling. That is so incredibly true. Right. And the best part is you don't know until you put it out there. And of course, you're like, wait a minute, what? So I created the course with the intention of small food brand, small to mid-sized food brand uh, marketers uh, to take it. And the idea was, okay, sampling, demos, all of these offline channels have disappeared. I noticed that everyone was flocking to Instagram and doing these like really scrappy cooking demos like, oh, come join my Instagram live and I'm going to be cooking, you know, quinoa using our chicken broth or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. But I was thinking next evolution, like, how are you, are you collecting emails? How are you going to market to the people who saw your experience? Are you sending them the recipe? Like I was thinking about it as actually uh, you know, as a proper marketing channel, the same way we have discipline around Facebook ads and email marketing, like, can there be a discipline around the way that we're handling these online experiences? And so that's where my head was going. Uh, and so I was thinking that, like, that's who I was targeting the messaging to. Well, <laughs> nearly all of the people who have signed up for the program, we do have a few people from food brands, but we have a lot of cooking instructors and food content creators who are looking to teach online and they are like excited by this idea of now being able to reach an audience worldwide. Whereas maybe before they could only teach in their hometown. Um, You know, a lot of food bloggers who uh, are thinking like, Oh wait, this is a new revenue stream for me. Like I've never actually taught online cooking classes, but now I can do it. So it's, it's interesting. It's a totally different market, but I'm still getting interest from the food brands. And so I'm going to need to think about how to refine the messaging and refine the program for the next launch in September. But it is just an example of, you know, you think, you know, and then you put it out there and then the market speaks. Yeah. Is it something that from a revenue standpoint can replace what you had built before? Because obviously it's super scalable, right? Um, but yeah, is, is it something that is scalable to the point of, of uh, recuperating and maybe even exceeding the revenue I, that, that has been lost? Absolutely. I mean, in a perfect world, I'm doing both. And 20% of my revenue is events and 80% is this online model because just from a lifestyle perspective, I don't want to be running around, traveling from airport to airport, lugging carts around. And I also don't want to build a huge agency with multiple layers. So it kind of has to work. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, I, and I know it does. I fortunately am in a community of other uh, online course creators who have built businesses solely on that. So I know it's possible, but I also know that I'm just at the beginning. 
Well, that is certainly an exciting place to be. And I, I'm, I'm also very excited. This is how I end like every episode where I'm just like, I'm like frothing to be able to fast forward in time and, and hear just how, how amazing things went and like just how successful and like for the next time that we podcast, I have to like go through your assistant's assistant so that you can be like, oh, I guess I can make some time for this like little pittance of a podcast. All right. You give them seven minutes. Uh, it just, I mean, it just sounds like you just have all of the tools and I, I, I feel like given the, 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 the business climate and what people need that you are adapting to meet the challenge. And I, I'm just excited to, to see just how many zeros uh, you've added at the, at the end of this. Next time we have you on, it'll be a, for our catch up episode. Um, yeah. I'm just, I'm just super excited about it. It just sounds Thank like you're you. just doing everything right. Thank you. I, I think the biggest lesson I've learned during this whole COVID pivot, whatever you want to call it experience uh-huh. is that, for me at least, getting into action is the most important thing. The worst thing you can do is just wait um, or just to to feel like your hands are tied, even though they probably are. <laughs> you need to like find a way to untie them. And I think for me, being a solopreneur, I can make those decisions on the fly. And that's where I'm super grateful and super thankful that I don't have an office space. I don't have a team. I didn't have to have a lot of the tough conversations. I know a lot of your guests have had to have. So I, I believe like that, that is a gift and a luxury that I get to have, but uh, it also means that it's just me and I have to be really resourceful. Like you said about how I spend my time and I can't just dabble in many things. I have to go all in and focus. Yeah. And, and it's so tempting to dabble because of what we talked about earlier about not putting all of your eggs in one basket. But at a certain point, if you want to set yourself apart from the crowd, you have to be really good at one thing. And that's something that is like, you know, ancient marketing wisdom. But like, if you try to, it's, it's like in a similar vein to, if you try to appeal to everyone, you end up appealing to no one. Are you, are you talking about niche marketing? Cause niche marketing is my favorite of all time. All right, like my well, favorite subject. We could geek out over niche marketing <laughs> anytime. I, I absolutely. Um, man, I feel like we could just keep talking forever, but uh, I we got to get to the last question here. Which before we get to it, I want to preface it by saying that prior to COVID, you weren't consumer facing. You were like very much going after like kind of the bigger companies. Uh, but you've certainly expanded your offering, so now you basically have something for everyone. So with that said, how can our 11s of listeners support you and your experiential marketing company, Hidden Rhythm, the podcast, the business? uh, How can they support you now and then in upcoming months? Because it sounds like you do have so much value to to offer, whether someone's an individual who's just interested in in learning more about the space or being more educated in how to advance their own business. Yeah, absolutely. So The Experiential Table podcast, which we mentioned before, and the Facebook group are available. And that's where I just give a primer on experiential marketing. I'm bringing on people uh, who have created these online cooking classes, who have experience in the offline world. It's a great way to just get your feet wet with the types of things that I'm thinking about every day. The Facebook group has uh, food brand marketers, experiential marketers, people who want to do this thing called experiential marketing all in one place. So it's a great community. And uh, the course is coming out again this fall. So I'll have more information on hiddenrhythm.com. So if you are looking to kind of step up your brand's online presence and create actual engaging experiences with them, that's what we'll be talking about in the program. And it's a six-week course. So uh, yeah, really, really excited to connect with you all. And you can find me on Instagram at hidden underscore rhythm. I am in the DMs. I don't have an assistant to an assistant doing it. So you'll catch me if you actually, uh, if you send me a DM. I, I love that. I love that. We we definitely get the DMs where people think that they're going to be, you know, put through layers of bureaucracy. And and it's like, it's like the, you know, you call up uh, Tesla and like Elon Musk is like, Tesla, this is Elon. Can I help you? Like that, that's how I feel sometimes, of course, being like 0.0001% the size, but still where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the owner. What, 
what what can I do for you? <laughs> well, it's funny. At some point, my friends just respond to my hidden rhythm posts and DMs with like really personal stuff. And at mm -hmm. some point I have to be like, you know, I might have an intern one day and yeah. probably should use my personal account, but we're not there. So it's yeah, okay. yeah. So someday I swear I'm going to be big enough where that's going to be weird. Um, all right, Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so excited to have you back on in a few months um, and hear about what a, what a banging success the next round of your online class was, and also to share notes about your podcast, The Experiential Table. Let's stay in touch and talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Grant. This was so fun. Thank you to my guest, Cynthia Samania of Hidden Rhythm. Check out her website, hiddenrhythm.com, where you can learn more about innovative ways to market your company, as well as sign up for her next online course. My unsponsor of the show is, as always, an awesome company run by awesome people who make an awesome product, but as a small business, might not have much of a marketing budget. So today's show was not brought to you by Traveler Coffee, a small batch San Diego coffee roastery. And yes, they sell amazing coffee in standard one or two pound bags, boring, but what's really cool are their single-serving go bags. Imagine a 100% biodegradable tea bag, but with coffee. Traveler Coffee sells individually nitrogen-sealed packets of a delicious blend specifically designed to be drunk without milk or cream because it's for on the go. Just a really cool, innovative approach to getting quality coffee, perfect for work trips, if those ever happen again, backpacking, or in the new normal of working from home. So when you're on the go, you can still get pour-over quality texture with subtle, fruity notes layered in with a sweet, chocolatey, nutty finish. And let's just pretend like I made that description up and didn't read that straight from Traveler's website, which is TravelerCoffeeRoaster.com. Now it's time for listener participation. I need your help finding deserving companies to be featured as my unsponsor on future shows. So give your company or a friend's company a boost and submit recommendations through smallbizgoneviral.com or email me at smallbizgoneviral at gmail.com. Feel free to include feedback on the show as it's a work in progress. As of the day I'm writing this, if you are a listener and you email me, you will be the first one to do it. Seriously, I'm an extrovert caught in a socially distanced world and I could use a hello from someone I don't know. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates, for use of their song, Geronimo. Facts and figures come from Worldometer.com, NPR, Robinhood, and the Robinhood Snack and Morning Brew Daily Newsletters. Someday this will all be over. Until then, wear a freaking mask, socially distance, stay safe, and share this podcast with the small business owner you know who needs to hear they are not alone. <laughs>